Welcome back to another episode of Pounding the Table. I'm going to be out in Vegas this week, but we got Tony, we got Dom, and we got a secret assassin ready to rock your world this week. Hang tight, and Dom, kick things off. For those of you who are new to Pounding the Table, it's a podcast about the stock market and the art of options trading. Each week, we analyze the news and provide our opinions and insights around how we think the markets will be impacted and share why we believe the retail investor can succeed as successful as anyone on the street. Now, the thoughts in this podcast are purely that of opinion and our own personal investments. Everything said on every episode of Pounding the Table, as well as our Twitter account or any other media account, are not and should never be used as financial advice, recommendations, or solicitations. So what does that mean? Do your own due diligence and research the companies you like that we talk about and be able to simply explain what they do and why you invested in them. So we have here today a special new guest to the Pounding Table crew, Riley McAdams. Riley, welcome. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's about time I get to talk a little bit to you guys. Uh, Just a little intro to myself. I'm a 21-year-old college student and uh, looking forward to getting to know each pounder and you know, getting to talk stocks and, you know, letting everyone know who, who I am and what I'm about. Love it. And Riley's been doing a ton of work for Pounding the Table behind the scenes for a while now. So we thought we'd put him in front of the curtain. Uh, he doesn't have that bad of a face. So it's nice to have you, Riley. <laughs> Thanks, man. So we're out with Avi this week. He's coming back from Vegas. So uh, hopefully he didn't lose too much. Uh, so it'll just be uh, Tony, Riley and myself, Dominic Rinaldi here today. And we're, we're going to talk about what's going on in the market. It's been a crazy month. Uh, really, it's been a crazy three months plus. But what's going on right now with quality versus speculation and value versus growth? And what really is the value that you want to go after long term? And what's a good deal? So I'm going to hand it off to Tony because I know he has a lot of thoughts around where we're at today and what we're seeing spike up in investments and just really what we should be looking at and paying attention to. So, Tony, take it away. Yeah, I'm happy to. So this market's obviously been very crazy over the last year. You know, you had that huge correction uh, based off the pandemic last March, and everything, you know, systematically together dove down. And then you saw the winners from that quickly were the ones that were those work-from-home beneficiary names. And the ones such as like cruise liners and airliners, uh, gas names, everything was just so deflationary that anything, you know, bunny ears value was the one that took a long, long time to recover. Right. And I remember back then when I was looking and saying, well, when am I going to be able to be buying these names and know that they'll probably start ripping? And I was looking at the logarithmic curve for how many active cases we had in the U.S. And it, you know, then it went indefinite. Right. So it went straight up, which meant that it was accelerating uh, faster than it was. And it became so fast that it just was going to continue. 
And when you look at it now, you know, and I look at this in hindsight, obviously, I wish I'd kept watching it because I figured that people assumed that obviously COVID is going to get better with vaccines and such. But it was pretty interesting to, to look at the chart and know that, you know, I think February 4th or 5th is when the active cases, that chart started trending back down. So obviously the vaccines were working or, you know, there's a lot of other external factors that could be playing into it, right? If people get vaccines, even if they have COVID because of the vaccine, because obviously it's not 100% effective, they may not be going to get tests as much. They may not want to know whether they're positive or negative. And people might just be, you know, having COVID, especially the younger crowd who's already out into the world, partying at nightclubs and this and that. And, you know, a lot of those guys are asymptomatic, so you wouldn't even know. But regardless, the numbers are what people look at because they assume that those are the numbers that don't lie. And obviously, that's what happened with those uh, industrials and the, the previous value names coming back up. But I think a lot of people misunderstand the fact that while these stocks aren't all the way back to their highs, some of them, you know, those uh, the COVID hurt names, right, the cruise lines, airlines, such like that, they've done so much dilution you know, they've done so much debt offerings that they're actually worth way more in market cap than they were before, even at the price that they are currently. Um, and there's this tweet that I saw the other day from Austin Lieberman, shout out to him, great investor. And he was just showing that, you know, if you compare some of the biggest tech names to uh, these big value names, right, the banks, the energies and such like that, they're still, you know, the value to growth narrative is kind of funny because if you look at them, you'll see that, you know, things like Adobe, Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, and PayPal are way better in terms of profit generation, revenue growth, and just balance sheet and just their future prospects than stuff like Deutsche Bank, Exxon, GE, IBM, and Shell. So I think a lot of people are, you know, this is more of a trade. And I, and I think it's that transitory trade that, over time, we'll broaden out, right? Like, because things are better, these will continue to grow as they did in the past. But, you know, there's no reason why these names will be the ones that go parabolic continually. They just don't have the balance sheets and the growth prospects for that, in my opinion. Yeah. And you could see from the all time highs, you know, they're down 90%, 42%, 77%, 32%, 52%. So you're looking at a dead cap balance, essentially. Everyone's buying into the longer term you know, dead cap balance, expecting it to keep going. Bond back value. Yep. Yeah. Bond value. When you got Adobe, Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, PayPal, you know, they're down nine, five, 16%, 20%. Yet you got to look back and look at the, the returns since the lows. I mean, you got PayPal up 200%. You got to expect a 20% correction. You just have to, it's not going to go up forever. It's a great buying opportunity, but everyone's too busy buying Shell or, or ExxonMobil GE is not a bad one. I like what they're doing, but I mean, Exxon Mobil and Shell, there's just really no no reason for it. I mean, you're just going to be chasing the herd and trying to buy the top. I mean, you might not know, but essentially you're buying the top. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but you got way too many better opportunities in these other names like Adobe. I mean, Adobe's a fantastic long-term company. Same with Amazon. Amazon had a fantastic earnings. So if everyone's looking at valuations, right? People look at price of sales. I was looking at price of sales for the longest time in this market because that's pretty much what was going to drive that future growth as the expansionary markets were, you know, kind of chugging along, right? You had this almost seemingly infinite cash flow that companies could lever and, you know, margin out to grow their businesses. But regardless, if you look back, you know, Deutsche Bank, 322 times LTM EPS, Exxon, negative 18 times, GE, 42 times, IBM, 26 times, Shell, negative 10 times. But then you look at Adobe seven times, Amazon, seven times, Facebook, eight times, Netflix, eight times, and PayPal, 11 times, right? So while this value play looks great, 
right? If you look at the charts, if you look at the actual numbers on the companies, it's kind of a joke because the growth is the value and the value is now the ridiculous, you know, high, high, high multiple growth. And it's just a matter of time before people, you know, really understand the numerics there behind all those numbers and see what's going to really happen long term. Right. And of course, you know, you've got lumber going up, I think it was 500%. And recently they had two limit down days, which Riley did call. And it's to say like, you know, it, 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 you think there like what's going on in terms of all the other commodities and what's going on and the things that actually impact inflation. And, you know, you had the pipeline getting hacked. Then you wonder what happened there. You know, there's a lot of places, there's gas stations near my house in Florida. That's not even, we don't even have the, the colonial pipeline doesn't even come here. And gas prices were soaring and every gas station was completely like out of gas. And so it's like, are people driving this? Is this actually the economy? Of course, people drive the economy, but what's the motivation for what they're doing, right? You had super, super, super cheap rates. People could build houses up the yin-yang without having to lever any money for them. So they just had to, they get free cash, right? They didn't have to use anything out of their pocket, essentially. And of course, lumber goes up because everyone's building. Like, you know, across the street from my house, they built 15, $3 million mansions just because they had the cash due and it was cheap to finance. And so how does that change when rates go back up, right? It's not going to stay that way, in my opinion. And I think you'll find that great long-term companies will be great long-term companies. And for the same reasons people hate the names that we liked now, they're going to hate these names in the future that they like now. So that brings up a great question, Tony. Within the market today, what drives deflation, right? What is that? It's technology. Technology increases productivity it lowers the rate of wage growth relative to productivity. And it's kind of that deflationary that people don't look at. So when you look at yeah. some of these companies that we've invested in and are investing long-term, it's important to think about what type of investor you are and why are you doing what you're doing. If you're trying to swing trade and get some bounces, you're playing the cruise lines, you're playing airlines, you're playing bounces and dips. But if you're looking to hold generational wealth driving companies for decades, what type of companies do we need to be looking at? What are yeah. some mega trends that we know are not going to change? Well, we know that data is the new currency, right? We can all agree about that. Data is the new currency. If anything, with the IDFA announcement with Apple and the privacy regulations, they also are, are trying to protect data and, and all recognize our data is worth a lot. We also know that healthcare is changing and is ripe for disruption and personalized healthcare. We know that genomics and the uh, ability to provide personalized medicine and DNA sequencing has been cheaper than ever, and it's going to continue to decrease. We also know that fintech and the elimination of cash and banks is evolving. It's changing, right? And, and I'll hand it off to Riley here in a second because he can talk about his generation of what they're looking at for cashless and transactions. You look at e-commerce. E-commerce is in the ripe uh, mode of growth and adoption. And there's a lot of people that purchased their first online purchase during COVID who are not going to change and realize it was just that easy and nothing was taken. It was fully secure. And it makes sense, especially the, the older generation. So we know that these transitions are going to continue and 5G is going to make things even that much easier, that much more convenient. So if we're long-term investors, shouldn't we be looking at investing in companies that are 
investing in their success long-term in these areas. And, and Riley, I'll just pass it off to you because you're a little younger than us and, and are in college and, and know what's important to your generation and convenience and the ability to be flexible. How does that play a role with technology and, and what you're investing in? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, I'm just, I'm looking at a lot of the, the newer trends. I mean, you got freelancing with Fiverr, Upwork, you got all these. I think the, the one that I, I pay attention to a lot is solar. I think that a lot of people are starting to really overlook it. Yeah, they had a, a pretty big run. You know, I would say it's a generational buying opportunity because the sun's going to be around until we die. That renewable energy is the key. And so I'm just looking at some of these charts. You have sun run down 60% from the highs. You got FSLR down 34%, JKS down 65%. You got all these great solar companies that are trading at, at a major discount. One of the one of the big ones that I like is, is Givo, and it's not even solar, but it's with the renewable energy, and it's down 62%. These companies are going to get billions of dollars in tax relief and, and the energy credits. It's, it's actually happening as we speak, and you have an administration who's focused on these renewable energy companies and they're just going to get these benefits. So to me, it's really a great time to be getting into a lot of renewable energy companies. Yeah. And I think uh, to to your point there, regardless of of whatever administration is in place, we know the future of automobiles will be electric, right? We've kind of established that. And globally, there's certain countries like China that have to go that route due to pollution and the the challenges they have within that space. And so we know that Tesla paved the way for this industry. We don't know who the other big winners are going to be, but at the end of the day, we know that trend's happening. So what can we invest in that that trend will, if we're patient and can build upon in good buying prices, that will yield good results. So you look at things like Tesla right now is at a a lower point than it has been in a while. You look at STEM, which is a new company. It's a risky company, right? It's a risky investment. It's been around for about 10 years and they're now public and they have to prove results, right? We want to see execution, but they're doing AI-driven pure energy distribution for renewables. Because we know that you have solar power and you have wind power. At times during the weather season, there's going to be intermittent issues with that. And we saw that with Texas this past year. And so what do you do in that situation? Mm-hmm. Do we let someone suffer? Or do we have a solution for that that can distribute that energy effectively? And also, all the while, decreasing and saving costs for organizations and companies or utilities. And so STEM works with both sides of the house, the, the front of the meter and the back of the meter. You can put a little bit in, and what's the worst that happened? If you're willing to lose a little bit, then it's not a big deal. But if it goes gangbusters, then it was a good investment. And you want to watch your investments and do your own due diligence. That's why we say on the show, do your own DD, right? Earn your conviction. Don't take my word for it. Watch some interviews with the CEO. Take nobody's word for it but your own, 100%. Exactly. Because, yeah, my biggest losses were listening to others and not doing my own DD. And, you know, and that, that's just the way that this works. And I think this kind of pulls back to this bonsai point, right? We're talking about these names that are these thematic changes, but those are things that, right, they're happening now, but they're not established, right? Like we know PayPal will be here in 10 years. So we know, I mean, I'm 
almost positive FC will be here in 10 years, right? Especially the way that they're killing it these days. So those are the, like that bonsai idea. And I will go back to this every time. I think people, you know, they can understand it, but it's like taking a horse to water and making that horse drink. That bonsai is supposed to be that protected, you know, nest of your portfolio, whether it's 50% to two thirds of your portfolio, however risky you are as an investor. Heck, it could be 100% if you're a long-term, you know, if you're an older guy, who is not as risky, more risk averse kind of thing, what may have you. But like, I think that no matter if you're, you know, 20 to 45 or 65, I think that you should have at least 50 to 66% of your portfolio and things that you can quantify and say, look, this amount is trading at this price to sales with this EPS and this EBITDA. And that's always been the point. That's always been the core idea of it, right? So I know a lot of people are like, you know, they, I think they overstretched what they believe in these companies. And, and I'm guilty of it too myself, right? Like I have extra conviction in certain names that have pulled back a lot, but perspective here, right? Like if you go up hundreds of percent and going down 30, 40, whatever percent, if you've not looked at Amazon in the past decade or two, if you've not looked at Google, if you've not looked at Facebook, Apple, every one of these companies has had severe drops and they've always, and those are all at points have been more established then even the companies now they're getting sold off a ton, right? So it's the perspective of like, let's say you buy a stock at 10 and the stock is at 20 in a year. But if the stock goes from 10 to 50 to 20, then that's an issue for people mentally, right? So I think that that's an important thing to consider is that those are the times at which, you know, bonsai trimming and such reallocating based on the changes in the stock's price to the fundamental you know, valuations of the company are important. And of course, I do own some companies that are pre-revenue, like I own Nanox and I own you know, certain things like that. And that's okay for me because that's not 20% of my portfolio, right? That's not, a, I don't have 20% of my position in Nanox, right? I'll, I'll have a maybe one to two, maybe 3% position depending on, you know, in a company like that, depending on how many I want to own in that, those branches of the bonsai, which are obviously the riskier ones. So, I mean, like mathematically, right? If you think if I have 50 to two thirds of my portfolio in something that's established safe, that you can just go and you can literally sit down on Google on Excel or Google Sheets or whatever and write down your comp- your portfolio's price to sales, your portfolio's EBITDA, like as if you were investing in a VC private company. Lump them all together in that portion of your bonsai, that concentrated base, and say, in five years, what are my cash flows? Right, as if you were like as if all those companies were just yours, and that's the way you need to think about it. Because I think exactly people, right. you know, they. They got excited because a lot of names were running like crazy, right? And that was because of the trend in the uh, the environment, right? You know, small caps run November to December. You knew we were going to be printing money, this and that. And of course, February crept up on everybody, crept up on me as well. I did say, you know, and this is something that I'm kicking myself for, is the amount of times on the podcast right before the drop that I was like, I don't like what I'm seeing. You know, this is there's going to be a crash that puts hair on your chest word for word. I don't know when it's going to be. It might be next week or it might be in three months. And it happened, obviously, next week, because that's the fate loves irony aspect of the markets, right? You think it'll happen a little later, and it happens sooner. And the Fed says we're going to taper 2024, and then they're like literally hinting at doing it in the next three to four months, whether it's you know QE tapering or rate raising or you know even slight operation twists. Like Who knows if that's even going to be good, what they're doing. So there's a lot of things like that that you need to consider instead of just being like, I'm a fundamental investor. Because... It's hard to just be a fundamental investor unless you never look at your portfolio, because if you look at your portfolio, your stomach's going to hurt on the drops. If you don't, if you're not a fundamental investor and you're on Twitter every day for like 10 hours and you're talking to people and you're looking for new companies, that's a big deal. 
And I think that's important to consider that those kind of things play a big part in your in your portfolio because it's not that the stocks got killed just for whatever random reason. It's because obviously people were selling that. You know, hedge funds were the ones that were net short. They degrossed. And that's what happens. Like I degrossed partially and everyone degrossed a lot more than me. And then I should have degrossed more. But regardless, the, the, the fact of selling things that have ran so much, taking off a third, right? If something goes over a triple, you'll never lose that initial portfolio balance. And those are the important things that I think people don't understand. It's like, why are these names the one getting sold so much? Well, you've got taxes due on Monday. And if you're an intelligent person, you're not going to be saying, well, I own Goldman Sachs and I also own Fiverr. My Fiverr stock went up 700%. So let me pay my taxes with Goldman Sachs money because it just it doesn't make sense intelligently because then you're altering your bonsai base and then those cash flows become different in that 60% or whatever. And then over time, like, you know, you'll realize that now that people are out of those names, and I think that CPI and PPI were a huge problem in the last week, but those kind of capitulation, pre-market, horrible looking, you know, S&P cells along with big growth cells and then reversals on Friday, it's like bottoms happen on the worst of news, right? And tops happen on the best of news. And it's always that way because good news begets good news and bad news begets bad news. And then at one point that flips. And I think that's kind of what's going to be happening soon. Obviously, I don't know when that's going to be, but there's a lot of people who are kind of the ones now who are buying the Goldman Sachs and the GEs and all these. And I think that trade, the majority of that trade alpha has already been scraped. And I think that if you are a big hedge fund with a lot of cash and you've already degrossed, paid your taxes and sent your K-1s out to your investors, you're going to be looking for the next you know, six to seven months of opportunities. And where will those opportunities be fundamentally and thematically? And I find it funny even like thinking about cruise lines, right? Like is a cruise ship not a piece of technology, right? So things like that all have embedded technology within them. And it's just about, you know, that next step, which kind of leads interesting, interestingly into this other point of like, is this stagflation? Do we have high uninflation, high unemployment? Well, like it depends on the way that you consider things. First of all, unemployment, I don't like the way that it's recorded. I think that it's not really representative of the world that we live in because, I could not be working as like, you know, I could be a self-employed kind of guy just like doing jobs on the side, freelance gig economy. Am I even counted in unemployment or not? Right. Like if I have six months, I'm not looking for a job and then I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to work under the table as a waiter. Am I counted in unemployment? Like those things are not really factored in the right way, in my opinion. And I think over time, you'll see that there's no choice but to change it because there are kids making millions of dollars on Dogecoin. Like things like that, right? That's just the centerpiece of it. It's a tip of the iceberg, but it trickles down to everything, right? You have Instagram influencers. You have people selling Amazon drop shipping. There's a hundred things that people can do that, you know, sure, they're employed, they're, they are making money, but it's not in the traditional sense of that. And so I think that over time, you'll see that it's not really like a stagflation. It's a change in the paradigm of the world that we live in technologically wise. And that's not going to do anything but exacerbate over time. That will continue to put people out of employment. Like what did factories do to people, right? That's the difference. And and I think people misunderstand the number as it is, right? So like 6% unemployment is not 6% of the people that are out of work. It's 6% of the people that are opting into work after longer than six months counted in that, right? So it's like, it's an obscure number in my opinion for the world that we live in and knowing that data is going to play a role into everything. How much more efficient will everything become? How much more optimal will companies um, be and how much better will they perform as a result of that new technology? Like, think about it. You're not building the Tesla cars anymore. The robots that Tesla made are building the Tesla cars. No, you're hitting on a lot of good points there, Tony, with 
deflation, inflation, and technology, and I think we're all saying the same thing here, is that technology is not going to be denied. It's constantly changing the world we live in, and it's made it easier for us, and we're thankful for that. Technology will continue to make things just more convenient, and we'll get the most out of our time each day uh, to do what we want and to get the most out of our productivity, right? So I think let's look at it from a retail investor perspective and the fact that do you know yourself? Do you know why you're investing and what that money is supposed to be used for and how you're going to get your goals achieved? Because the reality is if we look back at the data, the the stock market, it's compounded on average when we break it down over 50 years, 100 years, about a 7 to 9% somewhere in there average. So if you're getting a 30% return on your overall portfolio for the year, you did great. And you should be happy. But we live in an instant gratification world right now that's seen epic proportions of returns in the stock market in the last two years that are unnatural. So for a new investor, it could be some scary times right now going through and seeing getting, getting their first punch in the gut of, of how it really works. Yeah. Uh, but also understanding it's okay and not to sell off, but to understand, did your thesis change? Did the results from that company change? I think Riley was talking about this earlier. There was a lot of companies that had great earnings results that they announced, and you basically get those earnings results for free or at a discount, and they went down. We have seen some companies trade or their price go down significantly with great earnings and great revenue results. And it, it's kind of it's been a, a head scratcher. So I'm going to pass it to Riley here to talk about a couple different ones that uh, I know he's been looking into with earnings. So Riley, what stock are you looking at from, from earnings yeah, right and, now? Um, so for, for the earnings, I would say Square has been that one for a lot of people that, I mean, they killed it. That one's talked about quite a bit. You got uh, Upstart who raised their guidance. A lot of people are getting on that one. They raised it to about $600 million from uh, $500 million. So a lot of people are on that one. You got uh, 3D Systems, uh, DDD. You know, they, they beat by about 400%. That one's, you know, it's down quite a bit, but a lot of people are starting to really get more bullish on that one and a lot to do with the 3D printing. But the one that I'm really excited about that not a lot of people are talking about is Callaway Golf. Okay, so this one, they beat their earnings by massive amount, 400%. The EPS forecast was $0.12 cents per share and they beat with a $0.62 cent per share B, which is massive. And so I'm really excited about this one because of the Top Golf acquisition that they had earlier this year in a March. So they bought all of Top Golf. They had a little stake in them for quite a bit, but they finally pulled the trigger and bought uh, Top Golf in an all stock deal worth about $2 billion. And so this is clearly a massive acquisition as Top Golf is positioned to, to really fuel the boom of golf for people more my age. And that's kind of where I come into play is like I could see a lot of these. Uh, trends from the younger generations and I can actually act on them. Something that a lot of older investors don't really have that sense of uh, feel for. But for me, I mean, I see kids my age, everyone wants to go to top golf. Like bowling right now is dead to me and it's dead to a lot of people. Sorry for you pounders that are bowlers, but it's a dying sport. <laughs> and and you have, you got, you got golf that, that is, you know, with, with post COVID, everyone wants to get outside. What can you do outside? Well, you can go play golf. But with Callaway, you know, they, they also have not only Top Golf now, but they also have their 
their golf club branding and they have Travis Matthew, which uh, if you're a golfer, you've probably heard of them. You know, they, they have some of the best apparel. I mean, I would say that they're kind of like a Lululemon of the golf industry, you know, very comfortable. It's a little high price, but you know, it's selling. And so with Callaway being able to be in all these top golfs, they're able to push all their clothes at all these spots. And they have, I believe, 66 locations and they're adding around, you know, five to 10 new ones a year, which is pretty good pace. Yeah. You have drive shack, which is a competitor, but right now drive shack, they have a few locations. So it's not really something that you could be scared about, but overall, I mean, Callaway is just going to keep growing. I mean, they use quantum computing to build their golf clubs. I mean, they're, they're one of the best golf manufacturers, if not the best. So not only are you going to have these professional athletes using their clubs, but you also have all the millennials. You have the younger generations that are going to top golf they're, they're going to be able to use the clubs and play with them. And, you know, when they're actually in the market to uh, buy the golf clubs, they're going to pick a Callaway club over a TaylorMade or, or any of the other ones. And it's just, it's so bullish to me that the younger generation is really adopting golf in a, in a very good way. Yeah. Sports betting is definitely helping out with watching actual golf, but a lot of people just want to get outside and they want to play. And so instead of sitting through a four hour round, you go with your buddies, go, go out to top golf, you could drink, eat, do whatever it is. They have fantastic food and they also have great, you know, choices of alcohol. If you want to get a little messed up on the weekends, you go ahead and you get to just hit balls with your buddies. It's very simple, but I think that it's a fantastic open play. And it's something that I'm looking forward to, to watching it grow right now. Their stock price is about 33 and believe it or not, they are, they're not that close to the all-time high at 39. They're not a super fast mover by any means, but their high in a, around 39 was set in, I believe, 1999. So you're talking a 20, 20-plus-year-old 20 company that they're not even close to the all-time high yet. And so far, the last earnings, I mean, as, as I said before, they crushed it 400% plus on, on a beat. So a lot of people are starting to get bullish on this, and I can really see a long-term trend forming that's just at the beginning, in my opinion. Yes, they're a little expensive, uh, $6 billion, but I really believe that in the long term, I mean, they're going to be the number one golf company for the rest of its existence. Not to mention, you, you're able to play golf from the age of 10, whatever it is, 10, 15 years old, to by the time you're on your deathbed. So it's something that's not going to go away. And you know, being just an individual person's sport is like, you go out and play yourself, you go out and grab a few buddies and go play. So it's, it's very versatile sport, I guess. It's not like hockey, not really like baseball, nothing like that. You could go out and play whenever you want. And so for all these reasons, uh, I'm just super bullish on this. Obviously it's not going to be, you know, uh, a disruptive tech company, but in the end, it's going to be a beast in your in your portfolio that you probably won't see uh, coming, but it's going to be a, a big return in the long run. Riley, I, and I would say to that though, what some people may not know about Top Golf is they do use a lot of technology to streamline their profits and their operations. Uh, I had the pleasure of doing a, a technology presentation there in Nashville. And got to walk the facility and to see what kind of hyperconverged technology they were using uh, in storage and VDI to drive business. And there were several efficiencies that they had adopted to make sure that they could turn around the most profits. So uh, some of the things when you go to a Top Golf that you won't recognize or think about maybe as a, as a customer 
is they have VDI set up for multiple advertisers on each screen at each booth. So they found that this drove a lot more revenues. They were able to get more marketing in there. They also have sensors on the actual inside the balls to show you all that competitive data on how far the ball was hit, how fast did you swing. All of that was used. And they also have it where it's set up with efficiencies on making sure to get you in and out of those booths as fast as possible so that that way they can continue to be profitable and get as many customers as they can. I've had several times where I've had to call and say, hey, we're booked. You know, you got to call in a little earlier or reserve an event. So I think this, is, to your point, is a very strategic acquisition. It's something that, you know, everyone else in the golf industry missed. I don't know how mm-hmm. you missed it because it is just growing like gangbusters. And to your point, uh, I don't think this is just a younger group targeting customer base with Top Golf. I think it's a fun family time for the whole family at yep. any age group. And, and they even have live music events, uh, at mm-hmm. least in Nashville they do, where they invite artists and, and other things like that. So... The, the fact that that deal just happened and they're already crushing earnings now. Fantastic growth for being what should be a value play. It's really starting to look to be, you know, a growth play. I mean, I, I think golf is, is something that's going to be booming post COVID and it's not going to stop. Riley, I believe you're so right with Callaway. It looks like a great business that's now added some more optionality with Top Golf and looks prone for a lot of growth in the future. So something to keep your eyes out on on the look for. When we talk about optionality, it just it brings me to one of the, I don't know, former heads of the table, or is it coming back to the table, Tony? Uh Mercado Libre, one of my favorites, just had a great earnings. Would love to to hear a little bit about your thoughts, Tony. Yeah. They had a they had a killer earnings report, and I know I was very very quick to jump off the melee train, but there was a good reason, right? Like there was a tech sell off, and if you have any instance of doubt between two companies during a tech sell off, my go to every single time is to back the horse that's the one that's in con like in question to be beating the other one, right? So it was not a play on the company; it was a play on the conditions and the timing of the market, which is very important to like understand that at that time they were selling everything and they had less you know, less reasons to sell Mercado Libre or C-Limited than Mercado Libre, right? And and you can see that because Mercado Libre did go down. It was over 35%, right? And C-Limited, yes, it's also down a substantial amount, but also understand that C-Limited has an earnings report coming up soon. Mealy just had theirs. You know, there's still time in, in the difference to understand where it'll be in five or six months, right? But I, I am no way taking Mealy off the table after that earnings report. I saw a lot of things that I liked. I saw that they were continuing to plow money into just getting more of a stronghold, that they were you know, doing things that were innovative, like adding Bitcoin to the balance sheet, which they didn't add much, right? Like It's not that they bought it, and so I'm interested in it. It's that they bought it, period. And they only bought $7.8 million. And you have no idea what that's for, right? That could be because of FX change. Like, it, it's, that's a currency thing. Mercado Libre is very susceptible to currency fluctuations. So that's exactly not right. a bad move for that specifically, right? So like, it, it's not as important for Tesla. Like, granted, Tesla does sell all over the world and has to do the same thing, but pretty sure Elon Musk hedges FX. But one thing about Mealy is that this is an easy way for them to do that. And I think that that was a smart move, knowing that's the reason and seeing forward that they could do other things like that that are innovative and, and will just grow their company overall. One thing to know too is I know everyone's, of course, obsessed about this valuation. And I know you'll, you can speak on that in a, in a couple of minutes, Dom, because you're the you're 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 now the numbers guy. But you know, if you look at Mercado Libre prior to COVID, right, it was at 760. So looking at now at 1323, 
It is not even double where it was pre-COVID. And what do you think happened to the company within the last 12 months? They have done more, way, way, way more than double every aspect of them, not only adding you know various small new niche business legs, but doing innovative things and showing us their road plan to do more, right? They now have Mercado Libre ads, Mercado Libre shops. They're doing a lot of different things that they weren't really doing before that haven't grown at all. Once again, in a 650 million populated continent, and they are crushing it there. And they are the ones that have been there and crushing it for the longest of times. And they're expanding into you know, uh, Mexico and they're pouring money into Brazil. So it's not that they're going to be going away. It's that at the time, for me, logically, it was like SC doesn't have any of those tailwinds that I have to worry about, right? So this is the difference in why that. But now as a result of their earnings showing that no matter what happened with SC's mobile app, which of course is a result of Garena getting into everyone's hands on that mobile device. And then, you know, through that, they download C-Money and they download Shopee. And Mercado Libre still crushed estimates and guided very nicely. So I have no problem with Mercado Libre anymore. It can come back to the table. It can have a meal or two. I mean, if you look at the chart here, it's like what I, I like. I'm always looking at this and I always talk about things going back to like mean regression and VWAPs, right? So the day that Mercado Libre really exploded on May 5th, right? I think that was a result of the pandemic at some point there, but it completely blew up. For, well, that was their earnings report. I remember playing that. They went from low 600s back to their high that day. So I anchored it from the May 5th uh, date, and you can see that it touched that anchored VWAP one September 17th, and it's now touching it perfectly again today. So knowing that and knowing that that's the average of all the volume of traded like traded shares and uh, the price of all those traded shares averaged out together over that time, knowing that it came back to touch that, for me, it's like Mercado Libre is not one of those companies you have to worry about, in my opinion, going down to pre-COVID levels because the company is two to three times the company it was back then. Right. So you have to understand the context. People are like, well, these COVID winners, they're not going to be lasting. Well, like what happens if Mercado Libre leaves? Who's going to be dominating like Southeast Asia or, or Latin America? Sorry, I'm obsessed with C-Limited. But, you know, it's not like if those companies both leave that, there is just nobody there to do it. Right. If, if Mercado Libre is not in that area, there's no one that's like synonymous with banking like Mercado Pago. So they have that moat. They have that strength in that region. And I think that to dismiss it as a, a solely a COVID beneficiary that won't have lasting benefits, which you can see with the number of users, you can see that with the number of orders, the gross like billing, it's the numbers show that it has become twice plus the company it is, right? So in my mind, is it fairly valued today? Yes, it's very fairly valued because it was well, already that, 750 before any of this things happened. And, and to your point, Tony, I mean, you just look at these numbers and- I can't see a, a miss. Uh, they 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 beat revenue, they beat earnings, but you but you look at these these growth numbers, and that's what you really want to see in a, in an emerging continent and, and population, and they're disrupting the financial and e-commerce space here. So net revenues for the first quarter was 1.4 billion. It was a year-over-year increase of 111 percent, 111.4 to be exact and 158.4% on an FX neutral basis. Uh, Their commerce revenues increased 139%, reaching a 910 million, uh, while their fintech revenues increased 72% year over year, uh, reaching 467 million. And gross profit 
was 591 million with a margin of 43% compared to 48% in the first quarter of the previous year. So why the decline? Well, the decline was they invested in their logistics business. They now have Mm -hmm. seven planes, seven gigantic planes for logistics because they want to provide the same kind of experience that Amazon Prime does with getting packages to end users quickly. And if you look, they actually just posted a video yesterday, uh, Mercado Libre did, of their sorter fulfillment center in Brazil. And it is already got over 25,000 views. It looks amazing. Uh, Very modern warehouse. So they were investing in their overall business and their go-to-market. That's what I want to see in a business that I want to hold for decades. I want to see the R&D budgets go up. I want to see the innovation and new business streams. In fact, with that, they did actually add some new businesses. If you look at their website, they are now doing rental properties and selling cars on their website. You could actually purchase a rental property, uh, possibly even a home. I'm not certain yet. I haven't dug too far into it, but then also selling and purchasing of cars. And then just two days ago, they now are seeing the entertainment business and that leg of business to get into like C Limited. So they are now partnering with Paramount Plus Partners in Mexico. And so they're offering up to 40% off of the Paramount subscription just for being a Mercado Pago customer. You use our fintech, you use our e-commerce platform. We're going to give you streaming at a much more reasonable price. So instead of coming up with their own content and having to buy all of that, they're able to partner with those who already have the content and offer it at a discount. So that is just another creative way of showing another revenue stream of optionality in their business. One of the things that I want to kind of comment on is, is the fact that they have so much cash on hand. They have, what, $3 billion, I believe? And so I'm kind of just looking at, at one thing is, is Latin America is one of the fastest growing regions for gamers right now. Who, who's to say that they can't, you know, try and take on C in, in the gaming world, you know? They have the cash to do it and definitely have the market to be able to push that. So what's stopping them from potentially taking on C? Not saying that they both can't coexist, but having that optionality, like you said, is just being able to, to you know, add more legs and they have the cash to do it. Now, that's a great point, Riley. And one of the other things, they're now opening up more in-person shops and having that capability mm-hmm. with their payment. So it really is nice to see a business focused on how do we gain as much customer base as possible in different areas, and then we'll go turn the profit switch on when we're ready. That's what Amazon showed us. Now, granted, they had the cash cow of all cash cows with AWS to do that. And so we see C Limited doing that with Garena and their digital gaming environment. We see now with Mercado Pago, their payment business was actually twice as large last year as their e-commerce from a revenue standpoint. So what I like about these different businesses that we're talking about is, as you pointed out, Riley, if I have cash on hand and I'm growing these revenue legs, I can buy a new leg. And Now, can I execute and integrate that effectively? That's the question. But Tony, correct me if I'm wrong. We've seen both of these companies do this very well, and the space is big enough for two winners. Mm -hmm. Well, and so here's the thing, too. I think it's actually complementary, right? So we we like talk about Mercado Libre as you know their balance sheet is stronger than C Limited's as of today. 
as of today. In five years, I actually think it'll be different. But as of today, Mercado Libre has a stronger balance sheet than C Limited. And C Limited is not focused on building massive infrastructure in like Latin America yet. And so that is very expensive. It's hard to penetrate that. And also Mercado Libre does have a strong hold on that. So they're the ones that are putting in that actual, like, you know, the hardware to software kind of thing. They're the ones that are building in the soft, the hardware. And, you know, they're also doing the software and C limited can piggyback on their infrastructure that they've built. And I actually think more reasonably, you'll probably see like some type of random partnerships between them for things that would just be beneficial to both of them. You know, like C limited does have different products than Mercado Libre. They also have that gaming division. There's no reason why that infrastructure can't connect with, you know, Mercado Libre as well. So I think that's very interesting. And also knowing that if you're a company that's predominantly in an area without infrastructure, right? Like Latin America has troubles with internet connectivity, with clean water, with all these things, because the infrastructure is so low per capita. It's interesting that they're able to have that kind of cash balance sheet while they're doing all these expansive things in areas that are hard to expand in. And so because they're doing that and they're doing it effectively, you know that the, first of all, the CFO is a legend. Uh, You should listen to one of his podcasts. Uh, he's very, 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 very intelligent, and he's very clever in the ways that he's doing stuff to make sure the balance sheet never gets in a tough situation, right? Like, of course, there's many risks to Mercado Libre. Like, I would say the biggest one is the fact that it's an Argentinian-based company, and we know how Argentina is politically. Um, it, that's that is the the fear, and that's why it dove a lot. Uh, one of its most recent dives in the last like nine months was the fear of Argentinians debt default defaulting. And so that's continually a, a risk, sure, especially with like inflationary, you know, things happening all over the world. Um, but I know that, you know, once a company gets large enough, it doesn't really matter in that sense, uh, especially I think the world is also going to continue to become globalized and innovative and things like that, where you can take hold of a company's private shares are not going to be able to be, you know, as accepted or as much of a thing in the, the coming decade, of course, as the entire world becomes so much more advanced. I think what's the last thing I want to touch on pretty much here is that I think everyone wants to talk about this moat. And I just like was, was, I wrote this article on Garena on, uh, like on afterthebell.io and knowing that, you know, people always think of a moat as black and white. And I don't really think of it in that way. Right? I think the, the biggest moat is whether you're the first, you're the smartest, or you cheat and no one who cheats wins. Right. So it's whether about, it's whether you're the smartest or you're the first. So I think C Limited has an intelligent approach, right? And it's hard to compare when, you know, intelligence is so high. Mercado Libre is clearly crushing it in their own way. And C Limited has their own approach that they're also crushing it. So they're both very, very intelligent companies. And so that's the most important thing. And of course, Mercado Libre was first. But as we've seen with like Tesla, for instance, like Tesla paved the way for so many other EVs that it made it infinitely easier for them to succeed. So you don't know the numbers on that because it's ambiguous. Because Mercado Libre laid that infrastructure, maybe C Limited even can grow faster there as well. So I think that it's going to be a, a thing of, you know, maybe who's growing the fastest there, but it's not going to be who's going to be taking the other cake from the other person totally. And that's pretty much where I think I stand now after seeing their, their earnings report and watching tech pull back to all these anchored VWAPs, which eventually they were going to, but they did it, of course, during the sell-off, which was a great time to be doing it. Riley, I believe you had a good comment earlier on the Bitcoin investment. What, what does that do for them? Yeah, so so Latin America, you know, all all the government issues and all this stuff, like inflation is definitely a key part, and it, it's very scary. And so a lot of people are looking to the cryptocurrencies, and so you know, Mealy's trying to combat that with with Bitcoin. And obviously, seven million is not that much, but I mean, it, you could see that Bitcoin sliding a bit. So you know, they're they're pretty smart with that. I mean, maybe they're waiting for a dip, and they'll be able to buy the dip. 
with a lot of that $3 billion in cash that they have, you know, they're going to be able to combat this, this inflation, the, the government issues that they have in this area and be able to really help out the customers that they have and potentially accept the Bitcoin, whatever it is, just something with it. And it's going to be something pretty cool to watch. Yeah, so they're taking a hedge just like many of these other corporations in Bitcoin and thinking about their currency challenges that they do face in, in South America. Now, another thing that both these co- companies have in common is they're founder led and they're founder led by very good founders. Forrest Lee and Marcos Galperin uh, are two of the best CEOs out there in the industry and have treated these companies like their baby. And both of them have been offered many times to sell out their company. And instead, they have chosen to go against the least path of resistance and start new revenue streams, new arms of business, because they want to be the end-all, be-all for that country of e-commerce and and engagement of how to do life. And so they're doing that. So I think there's a lot more that we don't even see that are under the sheets that are going to happen with these companies. So we'll have to keep an eye on it. Going on to a different company that also had a really good earnings beat and still got penalized, but bounced back on Friday was Palantir. Palantir Technologies is a very controversial stock or was maybe when it first IPO'd. I think people have grown to find it more accepting now that they also have a commercial side of their business. And even though we don't see everything that they're doing on the government side with their Gotham platform, uh, I think it's probably a good thing we don't know exactly everything they're doing with our government to protect our country, right? So they're now at $20 a share, but they've been fluctuating between 17 and 20 and as high as 40 just a few months ago. With this earnings, though, they were able to show double-digit growth, significant growth, both in uh, Foundry, their commercial side of the business, and also with Gotham for their government side. And so with their cash on hand, they have now accumulated over $2.3 billion in cash. So I would not be surprised to see an investment from them or acquisition, possibly, when companies start building that cash front. They did just recently, three days ago, sign a multi-year partnership with a company called Cellularity that is going to go public for a SPAC for cancer research. You've heard Alex Karp, the CEO, talk about their exposure and wanting to get into life uh, sciences and also really getting to multiple business verticals. They currently are in 40 different industries once again, 40 different industries. And why that is, is because their technology is so different in how they approach the sales motion. They're going to the CEO, they're going to the top down, and they are customizing their software and AI to meet specific business outcomes those companies need to make. And so I heard recently someone talk about Bank of America or other industrial Uh, companies who need AI, who need innovation to stay around and emerge, they can't afford to pay millions of dollars for all these data scientists coming out of MIT and Caltech like Google can. So how do you compete with that? How do you drive your business forward? That is what Palantir is solving for. And so with that, they clearly meet the rule of 40 with 49% of revenue growth year over year and 43% of EBITDA uh, growth percentage as well. So at a 92% growth, just doing exceptional. And they're now investing in customers 
that they're partnering with. They're allowing them to use their software for their business models. I wouldn't be surprised if in the fine print, we maybe find out that later down the road, they get some benefits in shares with Cellularity. They also are helping out an air taxi company. And I'm sure that they're also going to see some, some shares with that as well. So for this company, not only are they innovating and creating specific solutions for industries and businesses, and they've even commented on their earnings call that they want to focus on smaller, medium businesses as well, eventually get to that customer base. They're kind of taking that Tesla sales model approach, Tony, starting with the most luxury customers. We got our government, we got our big boy enterprise companies like BP, and then we're going down the stack and they've stated they want to be the most important software company in the world. And they want to be, and they will be profitable within the next three years if they continue the growth trajectory that they're on is what they claim. So, so a great company. I'm very um, interested in this one. What yeah. Do you some, something really interesting for me is like knowing the, the longer term trends. And so this is, AI is not a, a decade long trend. This is a century plus trend. I mean, it's a hundred year plus company and they're, they're the forefront of it. You know, they're, they're the leader. So when you're looking at this company, you're looking at potentially holding your entire life. And it's just one of those things like NVIDIA, where, where you're looking at holding that for 100 years, whatever it is, something that you could pass down to your kids. So it's just something for me being a young investor looking at is like, I can now be buying these shares and hold it until I end up dying, whatever it is, being able to pass it down. So, you know, looking that far ahead, it's something really cool. And being able to know that they have $2 billion with cash on hand and seeing the sell off. Don't be surprised if they end up making an acquisition by the end of it, by the end of the year. Don't be surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. No. I think it's really good to touch on that with NVIDIA because it is all about data. And we, we talked about that on the last podcast with Dom, how much it's just oriented around who can process the best and who can engineer data insights the best from that and build into new business legs. Because I think people don't really understand how big the wave of the next tech, tech move will be. Right. Like we started with blockbuster retail stores and everything. And then we went to e-commerce and then everyone's on web web 2.0 now. And it's like we're already making the moves. Right. But eventually we'll all be on web 3.0 and eventually it'll all be data oriented and everything from your toilet to your desk will be automated in some sense. And it's just there are ways there are things that you can't even understand yet because it's not been developed yet. Like we talked about this, Don, last time when I was looking at NVIDIA, there was no such thing as a DPU in the world like it wasn't really like it wasn't a thing as a a product or a service let alone a product as a service right so it was none of those things back in 2016 2017 and now that's like what everyone's doing and so things like that will continue to happen in various spaces right techs found its way into every single space and and so lastly there's one last company i want to talk about we see this theme that's that's eroding here of great companies that are founder-led that have taken a earnings hit and you're basically kind of get the earnings for free because it didn't even go up, right? But they performed. They showed they executed. They showed they said they were going to do what they're going to do and do it better. The last one that just took a huge hit, I want to say it was like 40% was the trade desk. And I've been a long holder of the trade desk since about $180 a share. I think it's been as high as 900 And now we're down uh, to, I think on Friday, it was like 506 So reported a wonderful earnings beat and yet it just dropped because of all this fear 
of the changes that Apple's making and Google are backing around third-party cookies. And so even though they showed 37% growth, they kept their 95% customer retention. They have kept 95% customer retention for the last like 12 quarters. So the customers aren't leaving because they're working with the actual buy side of ad agencies. They also blew away earnings. This is a cash cow business. Estimates were 77 cents. And instead they did a buck 41 earnings per share. So the company guided for 260.5 million at the midpoint for next quarter, which is 87% higher than last year's pandemic figure. They, they had nothing negative to report on, and yet it took a 40% drop. And I think Riley said this earlier, if you're a long-term investor, be prepared to get punched in the gut. It's okay. If you're a long-term investor, welcome that punch in the gut because something just dropped and got on sale. This was my fourth stock I ever bought, and I bought a hefty position. And even though it's not a eight-bagger anymore, and it's like a four-bagger, hey, that's still way better than what the market did. And I still believe in this company. I still believe in Jeff Green and the founder-led CEO who's already got 50 million clients signed up on the alpha of their UID 2.0, their opt-in email tracking solution for to replace third-party cookies. And they're going into beta mode. I think if there's anybody that's going to solve for a way that we can respect privacy, but also service customers from an advertising perspective, what customers want to get from an ad perspective, it's Jeff Green. And they're also now starting to think outside the box. Not only does connected TV not re- reflect and applied with IDFA, so they're, they're killing it in that part of the business, but then they just struck up an innovative deal with Walmart. So Walmart could get insights into their retail shoppers and be able to advertise better for them locally. So when you see that expansion and you see that building of cash flow, which they're building their bank up again, did they buy a, a, a Pubmatic or, or one of the other smaller ad agencies? You know, they have optionality at their disposal and they're being fiscally responsible. So I just wanted to share that on that, that particular point with those three companies. You know, all three of those companies, include CC Limited, all four, are continuing to generate cash. And that's what we want to see and reinvesting yep. it in the business. Right. Tony, well, why don't you bring us home here on, on closing down episode 31? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a lot to talk about and we try to adjust as much as we can every single week. But the, the truth of the matter is, of course, the, the trade flipped, basically. The market's entire overall short-term, long-term, whatever, the positioning in the market flipped You know, in the middle of February, right? And it got worse than a lot of people thought it was going to be myself included. However, if you really look at the perspective of things, right, like if you were up hundreds of percent last year, right, and you're down like 10, 20%, whatever it may be this year, that's not in any way a bad situation, right? Because if you look at the fact that, well, like all these names that are ripping and going crazy now, well, look what they have done in the last 12 months and look and, and then use that to think about what they'll do in the next five years, right? Like, do I really, really believe in oil and gas companies over the next decade? Absolutely not. Like I'm a pounding the table on renewable energies in any sense of the word, because I know that that's the outcome, right? If you can hack into a pipeline that commands 40% of the oil in the United States, that's not just a stupid thing. That's a security risk. 
right? And why does it make sense to burn fossil fuels when we're two degrees away from global warming temperatures, right? So I think that, and, and if you look in the administration that we have now, very focused on everything that we talk about, right? Very focused on, you know, electric vehicles, renewable energy, very focused on biogenetics and medicine and all those types of things. Like these are the industries that over the next decade or so, people will be pounding the table on. And I think it's really interesting to say that people, you know, the, you might be the skeptic today. And I believe that because eight years ago when I was first into Tesla, I was the, I was like, it was harder to find a bull than a bear, right? The bear were all up in the waters everywhere around you. There was a hundred bears for every one bull. And that always changes over time as you see missions get built out and actually succeed. And you see tangible progress in not just the themes, but the infrastructure of those things and everything that you do around the world, right? People call the Tesla the number one car because people like the technology. They like the advancement. They like the ease. They like the optionality. They like the optimality. They like everything about it because it's better than it used to be. And all these companies are doing that in a different way, right? And of course, valuations got stretched. That was the market. And as soon as rates went up, as I said, they started going down because that predicted that the vaccinations will cause the world to go back to normal. And what always happens when there's a paradigm shift into another paradigm shift, which will lead to another paradigm shift, is shocks at those inflection points, right? COVID, it's so clear to see that all those companies, these growth names exploded like a month or so after that started rebounding. And it's so clear to see that as soon as the active number of cases in the US began to decline, so did these names, right? And that could be for a myriad of reasons. That could be because people are selling those big winners for their tax lock and gains because it's obviously safer on your overall portfolio to do that. But I think that a lot of these companies have done what I expected them to do is going back to their anchored VWAP, right? And if we want to touch on like, we can touch on everything else like SPACs and all these names. It's just SPACs are the easiest things to be shorted. SPACs are the easiest things to get hit because they're so new. And like over time, you'll see that the companies that emerge that are real quality companies out of whatever vehicle, right? If you can get Airbnb opening over 150 when it was priced at 68, you are a hypocrite for saying there's anything different in a market besides the fact that it is supply glutted and that there was a ton of additional IPOs and such. Understanding that that company opened up triple, so did Unity, so did a ton of these other companies that everyone's fanboying over today, which I agree are great companies, but also understand the context. Those companies were brought out in a traditional IPO sense and they opened at a triple. And that is the reasoning that you know people were bidding these facts up so high. It does not mean that the companies are horrible. Do I think that there's a lot of promise in SEMA 4 in the next decade? Absolutely. Do I think that it's down because it's grouped into the SPAC names? Absolutely. The reason that the SPACs are now back to $10 is because the, the premium on expansionary movements has come down, obviously. And you can literally track the SPAC index to say that there was a 27% premium on pre-DA SPACs. And now it's like zero. I think it went negative slightly. So and think about that, right? Like that is actually how much risk people are assessing into the market, right? Because when an asset's supposed to be trading at $10 net asset value and it's trading higher, that just means demand is beating supply for risk. And also demand was beating supply for safety because of course the $10 like trust floor there as well. But you just really need to understand the context of these names. Like a lot of these names will take time to go back to their highs and some may never get back to their highs if they are not quality companies. And that is the game that you play because you can never, ever hit 100% of every company and be completely right. Like, I think that the thing that I kept, I kept saying on the last couple of podcasts is if a stock went from 10 to 20, you'd be elated. But if a stock went from 10 to 60 to 20, you'd be pissed. And so I don't know how long that's going to take for people to understand the right way to look at a company's movements over a short term period of time. 
But when that happens, and I think it what it takes two to four weeks to flip a habit, when that happens, if companies start to run for two to four weeks, you'll see premium come back in as if the market were normal because high growth environments, which is not high, like high rate environments, 1.5 to 2% is very okay. And a lot of companies have done growth companies do very well in modest rate environments. And so it's just a shock, I believe, from this change, many, many people deleveraging, but also there's the greater macro component of the S&P 500, of the NASDAQ, of the rut, the Dow, it's how much money was put into all these things, how much printing has affected the monetary supply. Those things matter, right? Like besides fundamentals, besides loved stocks or hated stocks or whatever, that is the driving force, right? So the only way that the growth names will completely flip, and it's not a matter of if, it's when and which ones will, and it's those that have quality, those have real promise and strains. Those will be the ones that flip first, right? You saw C Limited and Square almost get back to their highs on that pop that we had in March. And so those kind of things will continue to happen. Quality companies will continue to do well as long as the market's in a decent environment. However, the fear now is that if the S&P 500, the Dow, the right, everyone pulls back just normally, I don't know where that's going to go necessarily, but it is better to be, I think, in a name that's gone down quite a bit if the market were to crash than in a name that's held up very well because the market ran and flipped the script in that way. Right, it's very interesting to see that like after the CPI and PPI numbers, that's when the market decided to sell off. And it wasn't just you know the growth names. It was every name, right? All the banks sold off. Lumber commodities sold off. Cryptocurrencies are selling off. And it, things are just in a very large rotation. And you have to wait to see the, where the dust settles. But I think on the long-term horizon, thinking about which companies will in five years essentially consider them paying you a check, which one do you think will pay you the biggest check? That's the way that you go and you orchestrate a long-term portfolio allocation rather than playing, you know, whatever trend is happening right now for the short term. Because the long-term so trend Tony, is innovation. So so Tony, what I'm hearing is you gotta have perspective. <laughs> yeah, you gotta it's all have about perspective. It's all in context, right? Any stock chart in context means a lot different. So Riley, I know that you had some comments on this too. Yeah. There's one thing that a lot of people kind of get scared about is these drawdowns, you know? And one example that I really want to go back to is Roku. So they IPO'd in 2017 around 30 bucks. And so, so far, you know, they're $315 stock. And along the way, they've seen a 33% drop, a 50% drop, a 66% drop, and currently a 43% drop. And along the way, so far from IPO to the top, there was a 2,100% increase. And from the March low, there was a 700% increase. So you can just see that these massive moves, you know, there's going to be a correction due. Now, are you going to be able to buy the dip? I don't know. But as you can see, it's very rewarding when you actually do buy the dip because, you know, a lot of the good names that mostly we talk about are going to have those big rebounds and they're going to get back to the high. It's just a matter of when. And to your point, I think that goes back to what we echoed last episode, and we're we're going to echo every episode moving forward, is to do your own due diligence. Research these companies after we talk about them. If you like what we talked about, earn the right to pound the table on the stock. You can't pound the table if you don't earn the right to earn the conviction and do the homework. Be able to simply explain to your friends and family why you would invest in this company. How do they make money? If you do that, I think investing will be better in results, better in conviction and enjoyment, and that you're 
knowing these companies instead of just taking someone's word for it and then spending a whole bunch of money as a lotto ticket, hoping to get that return. So uh, we're going to wrap it up here on episode 31. I thought this was a great time, guys. I enjoyed this roundtable. And Riley, thank you uh, for joining us. Anything you want to leave the pounders with? No, I don't think so. I think it's been a pleasure being able to to chat with you guys and kind of getting to to pound myself being a, you know, a day one pounder, you know, been been pounding for over a year now. You know, it's it's been quite a journey and it's been really fun getting to to learn from, you know, Anthony and and Avi a bit. And it's been a blast, Riley. And I'm excited to see where the pie and the table goes. We're going to be bringing on a lot of pounders to discuss what they want to talk about because at the end of the day, it's a pot of the people, for the people, by the people, all that good jazz. And we'll be back next week with some more pounds. Y'all on level one, on level three. Pounding on the table for my team. Every night I flex. I'm making big moves. That's a big move. Big money, big moves. That's a big move. I'm making big moves. That's a big move. Big money, big moves. That's a big move. Yeah. Make a play, don't talk about it. Master P, I'm about it, about it. This one here for all that try to count me out and they still counting. Honestly, I never doubt it. Say the top is never crowded. Well, I'm trying to climb the mountain till I know.